Section 2 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. The Regeneration of the Opera, Part 2, 4. The last and decisive step in the revolution was the coming of Gluck. It seems as if a century had worked to the limit of its strength to produce the flower of Gluck. The great man is always the composite genius of all the confluent temporal streams. Yet he himself was one of these composite forces from which the artistic purpose of his life was evolved. The Gluck of the first five decades, the Gluck of Italian opera, of what we may call the Metastasio period, was simply one of the many Italians unconsciously working toward that end. His work through two-thirds of his life had no more significance than that of a Leo, a Vinci, or a Yomelli. Fate willed, however, that Gluck should be impressed more strongly by the growing public dissatisfaction with senseless Italian opera, and incidentally should be brought into close contact with varied influences tending to the broadening of his ideas. Cosmopolite that he was, he gathered the essence of European musical culture from its four corners. Born in Germany, he was early exposed to the influence of solid musicianship. Trained in Italy, he gained, like Handel, its sensuous melody. In England, he heard the works of Handel, and received in the shape of artistic failure that chastisement which opened his mind to radical change of method. In France, soon after, he was impressed with the plastic dramatic element of the monumental Lully Rameau opera. Back in Vienna, he produced opera comique and held converse with lettered enthusiasts. Cal Sabighi, like Rinuccini in 1600, brought literary ideas of reform. Metastasio was relegated, yet not at once, for Gluck was careful, diplomatic. He fed his reform to the public in single doses, diluted for greater security, interspersed with Italian operas of the old school as sops to the hostile singers, jealous of their power. Only thus can we explain his relapses into the current type. He knew his public must first be educated. He felt the authority of a teacher, and he resorted to the didactic methods of Florence, of his colleagues of 1600, whom Calzabighi knew and copied. Prefaces explaining the author's purpose once more became the order of the day. Finally, the reformer was conscious of being a reformer, of his true life mission, Except for what human interest there is in his early life, we may therefore pass rapidly over the period preceding 1762, the momentous year of Orfeo et Eurydice. Born July 2nd, 1714, at Weidenfang, in the Upper Palatinate, Christoph Philibot Gluck's early years were passed in the forests of Bavaria and Bohemia. His father, Alexander Gluck, had been a gamekeeper, who, having established himself in Bohemia in 1717, had successively entered the employ of various territorial magnates, Count Konitz in Neuschloss, Count Kinski in Kamnitz, Prince Lokowitz in Eisenberg, and finally the Grand Duchess of Tuscany in Reichstadt. His intention toward his son had been at first to make of him a gamekeeper, and it is recorded that young Christophe was put through a course of Spartan discipline with that end in view, during which he was obliged to accompany his father barefooted through the forest in the severest winter weather. From the age of twelve to eighteen, however, he attended the Jesuit school at Komotau, in the neighborhood of the Lopkowitz estate, 
and there, besides receiving a good general education, he learned to sing and play the violin and the cello, as well as the clavichord and organ. In 1732 he went to Prague and studied under Chernohorsky. There he was soon able to earn a modest living, a welcome circumstance, for there were six younger children at home for whom his father provided with difficulty. In Prague he gave lessons in singing and on the cello. He played and sang in various churches, and on holidays made the rounds of the neighboring country as a fiddler, receiving his payment in kind, for the good villagers, it is said, often rewarded him with fresh eggs. Through the introductions of his patron, Prince Lopkowitz, it was not long before he obtained access to the homes of the music-loving Bohemian nobility, and when he went to Vienna in 1736, he was hospitably received in his protector's palace. Prince Lopkowitz also made it possible for him to begin the study of composition. In Vienna he chanced to meet the Italian Prince Melzi, who was so pleased with his singing and playing that he made him his chamber musician and took him with him to Milan. Here, during four years, from 1737 to 1741, Gluck studied the theory of music under the celebrated contrapuntist Giovanni Battista Sammartini, and definitely decided upon musical composition as a career. His studies completed, he made his debut as a creative artist at the age of 27, with the opera Arte Cerse, Milan, 1741, set to a libretto of Metastasio. It was the first of thirty Italian operas, composition of which extended over a period of twenty years, and which are now totally forgotten. The success of Arte Cerse was instantaneous. We need not explain the reasons for this success, nor the circumstances that, together with its fellows, from Demofonte to La Finta Schiava, it has fallen into oblivion. His Italian successes procured for him, however, an invitation in 1745 to visit London and compose for the Haymarket. Thither he went and produced a new opera, La Caduta de Giganti, which, though it earned the high praise of Bernie, was coldly received by the public. A revised version of an earlier opera, Artemene, was somewhat more successful, but Piramo et Tispe, a pasticcio, a kind of dramatic potpourri or medley, often made up of selections from a number of operas, fell flat. Quote, Gluck knows no more counterpoint than my cook, unquote. Handel is reported to have said, but then Handel's cook was an excellent bassist and sang in many of the composer's own operas. Counterpoint, it is true, was not Gluck's forte, and the lack of depth of harmonic expression which characterized his early work was no doubt due to the want of contrapuntal knowledge. Handel quite naturally received Gluck with a somewhat negligent kindness. Gluck, on the other hand, always preserved the greatest admiration for him. We are told that he hung the master's picture over his bed, not only the acquaintance of Handel, whose influence is clearly felt in his later works, but the musical atmosphere of the English capital must have been a benefit to him. Perhaps the most valuable lesson of his life was the London failure of Piramo et Tisbe. He was astonished that this pasticcio, which presented a number of the most popular airs of his operas, was so unappreciated. After thinking it over, he may well have concluded that all music properly deserving of the name should be the fitting expression of a situation, this vital quality lacking, in spite of melodic splendor and harmonic richness and originality, what remained would be no more than a meaningless arrangement of sounds, which might tickle the ear pleasantly, but would have no emotional power. 
A short trip to Paris afforded him an opportunity of becoming acquainted with the classic traditions of the French opera, as developed by Lully and Rameau. Lully, it will be remembered, more nearly maintained the ideas of the early Florentines than their own immediate successors. In his operas, the orchestra assumed a considerable importance. The overture took a stately, though conventional, aspect. The chorus and the ballet furnished a plastic background to the drama, and indeed had become integral features. Rameau had added harmonic depth and variety, and given a new charm to the graceful dance melodies. Gluck must have absorbed some or all of this, yet for fifteen years following his visit to London, he continued to compose in the stereotype form of the Italian opera. He did not, it is true, return to Italy, but he joined a travelling Italian opera company conducted by Pietro Mingotti as musical director and composer. One of his contributions to its repertoire was Le Nozze d'Ercole et Debi, which was performed in the gardens of the castle of Pilnitz, near Dresden, to celebrate the marriage of the Saxon princess and the elector of Bavaria in June 1747. How blunted Gluck's artistic sense must have been toward the incongruities of Italian opera is shown by the fact that the part of Hercules in this work was written for a soprano and sung by a woman. In others, the roles of Agamemnon, the king of men, of demigods and heroes, were trilled by artificial sopranos. After sundry wanderings, Gluck established himself in Vienna, where in 1748 his Semiramid had been performed to celebrate the birthday of the Empress Maria Theresa. It was an opera seria of the usual type, and though terribly confused, it revealed at times the power and sweep characteristic of Handel. In Vienna, Gluck fell in love with Mariana Pergin, the daughter of a wealthy merchant whose father would not consent to the marriage. The story that his sweetheart had vowed to be true to him, and that he wandered to Italy disguised as a capuchin to save expenses in order to produce his telemato for the Argentina theatre in Rome, has no foundation. But any rate, the couple were finally married in 1750 after the death of the relentless father. This signalized the close of Gluck's nomadic existence. With his permanent residence in Vienna began a new epoch in his life. Vienna was at that time a literary musical and social centre of importance, a home of all the arts. The reigning family of Habsburg was an uncommonly musical one. The empress, her father, her husband, Francis of Lorraine, and her daughters were all music lovers. Maria Theresa herself sang in the operatic performances at her private theatre. Joseph II played the cello in its orchestra. The court chapel had its band, the cathedral its choir and four organists. In the Hofburg and at the rustic palace of Schönbrunn, music was a favorite diversion of the court, cultivated alike by the Austrian and the Hungarian nobility. The royal opera houses at Landburg and Schönbrunn placed in their service a long series of the famous opera composers. Semiramid had recommended its composer to the favor of Maria Theresa. His star was in the ascendant. In September 1754, his comic opera, Le Chinese, with its tragic-comic ballet, L'Orfando della Cina, performed at the country seat of the Duke of Saxe Hildburghausen, in the presence of the emperor and court, gave such pleasure that its author was definitely attached to the court opera at a salary of 2,000 ducats a year. 
his wealthy marriage and his increasing reputation, instead of tempting him to indulge in luxurious ease, spurred him to increased exertions. He added to the sum total of his knowledge by studies of every kind, literary, poetic, and linguistic, and his home became a meeting place for the beaux esprits of art and science. He wrote several more operas to librettos by Metastasio, witnessed the triumph of two of them in Rome, after which he was able to return to Vienna. A Cavaliere dello Sperone d'Oro, Knight of the Golden Spur. This distinction having been conferred upon him by the Pope. Henceforth he called himself Chevalier, or Ritter, not von Gluck. 5. For the sake of continuity, we are obliged at this point to resume the thread of our remarks concerning the opera buffa of Pergolesi. In 1752, about the time of Gluck's official engagement at the Vienna Opera, an Italian troupe of buffonists introduced in Paris La Selva Padrona and Il Maestro in Musica, Pergolesi's only other comic opera. Their success was sensational, and having come at a psychological moment, far-reaching in results, for it gave the impulse to a new school, popular to this day, that of the French opéra comique, at first called Opéra Buffon. The latter part of the 18th century had witnessed the birth of a new intellectual ideal in France, essentially different from those associated with the preceding movements of the Renaissance and the Reformation. Neither antiquity nor the Bible were in future to be the court of last instance, but judgment and decision over all things was referred to the individual. This theory, and others laid down by the encyclopedists, the philosophers of the time, reacted equally on all the arts. New theories concerning music were advanced by laymen. Bateau had already insisted that poetry, music, and the dance were by very nature intended to unite. Diderot and Rousseau conceived the idea of the unified work of art. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the intellectual dictator who laid a rather exaggerated claim to musical knowledge, and the famous satirist, Baron Melchior Grimm, now began a literary tirade against the old musical tragedy of France, which, like the Italian opera, had become paralyzed into mere formulas. Rousseau, who had shortly before written a comic opera, Le Devin du Village, The Village Seer, in French, now denounced the French language, with delightful inconsistency, as unfit to sing. Grimm, in his pamphlet, Le Petit Prophète de Bohémiche Proda, threatened the French people with dire consequences if they did not abandon French opera for Italian opera buffa. This precipitated the widespread controversy between buffonists and anti-buffonists, known as the Guerre des Buffons, which, in this age of pamphleteers, of theorists and revolutionary agitators, soon assumed political significance. The conservatives hastened to uphold Rameau and the cause of native art. The revolutionists rallied to the support of the Italians. Marmontel, Favard, and others set themselves to write after the Italian model. Quote, Duny brought from Parma his Ninette à la cour and followed it in 1757 with Le peintre amoureux. Monsigny left his bureau and Philidor, his chess table, to follow the footsteps of Pergolesi. Lastly came Gretry from Rome and killed the old French operatic style with Le Tableau Parlant and Zemir et Azor. 
The result was the production of a veritable flood of pleasing, delightful operettas dealing with petty love intrigues, mostly of pastoral character in place of the stale mythological subjects common to French and Italian opera alike. The new school quickly strengthened its hand and improved its output. Its permanent value lay, of course, in the infusion of new vitality into operatic composition in general, a rejuvenation of the poetic as well as musical technique, the unlocking of a whole treasure of subjects hitherto unused. Gluck at Vienna, already acquainted with French opera, was quick to see the value of this new genre, and he produced in alternation with his Italian operas a number of these works, partly with interpolations of his own partly rewritten by him in their entirety. Among the latter class must be named La Fosse Esclave, 1758, L'Ile de Merlin, 1758, L'Arbre Enchanté, 1759, L'Evrogne Corrigé, 1760, Le Cadie du Pé, 1761, and La Rencontre Imprévue, 1764. As Riemann suggests, it is not accidental that Gluck's idea to reform the conventionalized opera dates from this period of intensive occupation with the French opéra bouffon. There is no question that the simpler, more natural art and the genuineness and sincerity of the comic opera were largely instrumental in the fruition of his theories. His only extended effort during the period from 1756 to 1762 was a pantomimic ballet, Don Giovanni, but the melodramas and symphonies, or overtures, written for the private entertainment of the imperial family as well as seven trio sonatas, varied in expression and at times quite modern in spirit, also date from this time. It is well to remember also that this was a period of great activity in instrumental composition, that the Mannheim School of Symphonists was just then at the height of its accomplishment. Gluck's first reform opera, Orfeo et Eurydice, appeared in 1762. The young Italian poet and dramatist Raniero da Calzabighi supplied the text. Calzabighi, though at first a follower of Metastasio, had conceived a violent dislike for that librettist and his work. A hot-headed theorist, he undoubtedly influenced Gluck in the adoption of a new style, perhaps even gave the actual initiative to the change. The idea was not sudden, we have already pointed out how the later Neapolitans had contributed elements of reform and it had paved the way in many particulars. They had not, however, like Gluck, attacked the root of the evil, the text. Metastasio's texts were made to suit only the old manner. Calzabigis were designed to a different purpose, the unified, consistent expression of a definite dramatic scheme in the prefaces which accompanied their next two essays in the new style, Alceste and Paride. Gluck reverted to almost the very wording of Perry and Caccini, but nevertheless no reaction to the representative style of 1600 was intended. Though he spoke of forgetting his musicianship, he did not deny himself all sensuous melodic flow in favor of a parlando recitative. Too much water had flowed under the bridges since 1600 for that. Scarlatti and his school had not wrought wholly in vain, but the coloratura outrage, the concert opera, saw the beginning of its end. The da capo aria was discarded altogether, the chorus was reintroduced, and the subordination of music to dramatic expression became the predominating principle. Artificial sopranos and autocratic prima donne could find no chance to rule in such a scheme, 
Their doom was certain, and it was near. In the war that ensued, which meant their eventual extinction, Gluck found a powerful ally in the person of the emperor, Francis I. In that sovereign's presence, Orfeo was first given at the Hofburgtheater in Vienna. Its mythological subject, the same that Ariosti treated in his Favolo of 1574, that Perry made the theme of his epoch-making drama of 1600, that Monteverdi chose for his Mantuan debut in 1607, was certainly as appropriate for this new reformer's first experiment as it was suited to the classic simplicity and grandeur of his music. The opera was studied with the greatest care, Gluck himself directing all the rehearsals, and the participating artists forgot that they were virtuosi in order better to grasp the spirit of the work. It was mounted with all the skill that the stagecraft of the day afforded, although it did not entirely break with tradition and was not altogether free of the empty formulas from which the composer tried to escape. It was too new to conquer the sympathies of the Viennese public at once. Indeed, the innovations were radical enough to cause trepidations in Gluck's own mind. His strong feelings that the novelty of Orfeo might prevent its success induced him to secure the neutrality of Metastasio before its first performance, and his promise not to take sides against it openly. Gluck's music is as fresh today as when it was written. Its beauty and truth seem far too serious to many of his contemporaries. People at first said that it was tiresome, and Bernie declared that, quote, the subordination of music to poetry is a principle that holds good only for the countries whose singers are bad, end quote. But after five performances, the triumph of Orfeo was assured, and its fame spread even to Italy. Rousseau said of it, quote, I know of nothing so perfect in all that regards what is called fitness as the ensemble in the Elysian fields. Everywhere the enjoyment of pure and calm happiness is evident but so equable is its character that there is nothing either in the songs or in the dance airs that in the slightest degree exceeds its just measure. The first two acts of Orfeo are profoundly human, with their dual picture of tender sorrow and eternal joy, the grief of the poet and the lamentations of his shepherd companions rising in mournful choral strains, insistent in their reiteration of the motive indicative of their sorrow, are as effective in their way as the musical language of Wagner, even though they lack the force of modern harmony and orchestral sonority. The principle is fundamentally the same. Nor is Gluck's music entirely devoid of the dramatic force which has come to music with the growth of the modern orchestra. Much of the delineation of mood and emotion is left to the instruments. Later in the preface to Alceste, Gluck declared that the overture should be in accord with the contents of the opera, and should serve as a preparation for it, a simple, natural maxim to which composers had been almost wholly blind up to that time. In Gluck's overtures we see, in fact, no Italian, but a German influence. They partake strongly of the nature of the first movements of the Mannheim symphonies, showing a contrasting second theme, and are clearly divided into three parts like a sonata form. Thus the new instrumental style was early introduced into the opera through Gluck's initiation, and thence was to be transferred to the overtures of Mozart, Sacchini, Cherubini, and others. In 1764, Orfeo was given in Frankfurt on the Main for the coronation of the Archduke Joseph as Roman king. The imperial family seems to have been sympathetically appreciative of Gluck's efforts with the new style, 
but nevertheless his next work, Telemaco, produced at the Burg Theater in January 1765, though considered the best of his Italian operas, was a peculiar mixture of the stereotype and the new, as if for a time he lacked confidence. Quite different was the case of Alceste, Hofburg Theater, December 16, 1767. In this, his second classic music drama, the composer carried out the reforms begun in Orfeo more boldly and more consistently. Calzabigi again wrote the text. The music was neither so full of color nor so poetic as that of its predecessor, yet was more sustained and equal in beauty. The orchestration is somewhat fuller. The recitatives have gained in expressiveness. There are effects of great dramatic intensity and areas of severe grandeur. Berlioz called Alceste's aria, Ye Gods of Endless Night, the perfect manifestation of Gluck's genius. Like Orfeo, Alceste was admirably performed, and again opinions differed greatly regarding it. Sonnenfels wrote after the performance, quote, I find myself in Wonderland, a serious opera without castrati, music without solfeggios, or I might rather say without gurgling, an Italian poem without pathos or banality. With this threefold work of wonder, the stage near the Hofburg has been reopened. On the other hand, there were heard in the parterre such comments as, It is meant to call forth tears. I may shed a few of ennui. Nine days without a performance and then a requiem mass, or a splendid two guldens worth of entertainment, a fool who dies for her husband. This last is quite in keeping with the sentiment of the 18th century in regard to conjugal affection. It took a long while for the public to accustom itself to the austerity and tragic grandeur of this tragedy set to music, as its author called it. Yet Alceste in its dual form, for the French edition represents a complete reworking of its original, is Gluck's masterpiece, and it still remains one of the greatest classical operas. Three years after Alceste came Paris et Elena. November 30th, 1770, a drama for music. In the preface of the work dedicated to the Duke of Braganza, Gluck again emphasized his beliefs. Among other things, he wrote, quote, The more we seek to attain truth and perfection, the greater the need of positiveness and accuracy. The lines that distinguish the work of Raphael from that of the average painter are hardly noticeable, yet any change of an outline, though it may not destroy resemblance in a caricature, completely deforms a beautiful female head. Only a slight alteration in the mode of expression is needed to turn my aria, Cefaro senza Euridice, into a dance for marionettes, end quote. Paride ed Elena, constructed on the principles of Orfeo and Alceste, is the least important of Gluck's operas and the least known. The libretto lacks action, but the score is interesting because of its lyric and romantic character. Much of its style seems to anticipate the new influences which Mozart afterward brought to German music. It also offers the first instance of what might be called local color in its contrasting choruses of Greeks and Asiatics. It is interesting to note that at the time of composing the lyrical Alceste, Gluck was also preparing for French opera with vocal romances, Lieder. His collection of songs, set to Klopstock's odes, was written in 1770. 
They have not much artistic value, but they are among the earliest examples of the Lied, as Mozart and Beethoven later conceived it, a simple song melody whose mission is frankly limited to a faithful emphasis of a lyrical mood. Conceived in the spirit of Rousseau, they are spontaneous and make an unaffected appeal to the ear. The style is nearer that of French opera comique, at which Gluck had already tried his hand, thus obtaining an exact knowledge of the spirit of the French language and of its lyrical resources. End of section 2, read by Sandra.